Section 9 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rear Guard of European Civilization by Edward Ford The Repulse of Islam Conan of Germanicia, Leo III, the Isaurian, is one of those men of whom we know too little. His enemies have been his historians, and how much they have blackened his fame we can only guess. They have not merely misrepresented the great emperor's character and aims. They have concocted petty tales as to his origin and upbringing, which still further serve to obscure his personality. On the whole, it is probable that Leo III was not an Isaurian at all, but a North Syrian, perhaps of Armenian descent. His true name appears to have been Conan, and he would seem to have been born at Germanicia in Comagene. When, however, we first meet him, we find him living with his parents in Thrace. Mardates of Syria had been settled in Thrace by Justinian II. The inference is that Leo's father was one of them. We obtain our first notice of the future emperor in the year 705, when Justinian II, with his Bulgarians, was advancing on Constantinople. He was sent by his father with a present of 500 sheep to the emperor. Clearly, they were people of some estate. Justinian perhaps discerned his ability. At any rate, he gave him a commission as Spatarius, aide-de-camp. Leo's subsequent life and adventures have been briefly alluded to, down to the day when he was crowned emperor. We know hardly anything of his private life. He was perhaps 35 years old in 717, and had a daughter of marriageable age. That is to say, she would be about 15. He was yet to have a son, and the wide gap between his two children makes it possible that he was a widower and contracted a second marriage about the time of his ascension. The name of the mother of his only son was Maria. She is said to have also been a native of Germanicia. If we were permitted to draw any inference from the fact that very early in his reign Leo had her crowned Augusta, he loved her and honoured her. Never had the political sky appeared so black. Heraclius had at least one faithful province to which he could retire in case of disaster. But now Africa had been in Saracen hands for 18 years. Asia Minor, so well guarded under the Heracliads, had been repeatedly ravaged. Several of its greatest cities had fallen. The European provinces 
if we may judge from their conduct soon after, were apathetic, if not actively disaffected. Italy was merely an open sore. Leo's authority was probably confined to the shores of the Propontis. He was known to be an able man, but his Puritan religious tendencies were probably also known, and would hardly increase his popularity. And ability and energy had not saved Leontius and Tiberius the Third. Shattered as was the empire outwardly, its internal condition was yet worse. The never-ending wars of the 6th and 7th centuries had reduced it to a condition almost of barbarism. The one good effect of the general uncertainty had been that serfage had died out. There was a large and vigorous class of small-holding farmers, a good omen for the future. But in everything else the decline had been great. Of the demoralization of society, during the Heracliad period and the first anarchy, some instances have been given. Art was at a low ebb. Literature had nearly died out. For a century the empire produced not a single historian, and only one bad poet. Ignorance and groveling superstition were rife. Yet the people who inhabited the yet broad provinces of the shattered empire had in them the capacity of self-improvement. Though in Asia Minor the original population had been thinned by war and its concomitant evils, it had been swelled by great immigrations from Armenia, Persia, and Syria. The result was that, while the old population of the empire had fallen off perhaps 40 or 50 percent since 540, the loss had been largely made up. Further, the peasantry as a whole had better chances of naturally increasing in number than under the old cast-iron Roman administrative system. Could the Saracens be beaten off, there might yet be a chance for the stricken empire to recover itself. The emperor strained every nerve to strengthen the capital for the coming siege. What the result of his endeavors was is doubtful. There is reason to believe that in more than one respect they had comparatively small effect. It must be remembered that the normal civil population of Constantinople was about half a million or more, swelled in the present instance by troops and probably refugees. The practical difficulties of keeping it adequately provisioned must have been enormous. Anastasius II had issued an order that every householder was to lay in two years' supply of breadstuffs. For many, this must have been an absolute impossibility. Probably even those who could afford the large outlay would have found themselves unable to comply with the order, simply because, though they might be willing enough to buy, the necessary quantity of corn would not be forthcoming. 
orders of this kind are likely to remain dead letters. It is practically certain that Leo's nightmare was a complete blockade of his capital. As to the strength of the garrison, we know little. It was sufficient for its purpose, but probably not much more than sufficient. Leo ventured as far as we know, only one sortie in force, and this was very late in the siege, when presumably a sufficient proportion of the citizens had been trained to relieve the regular troops and guarding the walls. The main strength of the garrison at the outset probably consisted of Leo's own Anatoliki, but it included the whole or the greater part of the imperial navy, a factor of supreme importance. It is not too much to say that everything depended upon it, yet it was too weak to face the great Arab armada in the open. The Saracens had planned a double advance by land and sea. The land column concentrated at Tarsus under Maslama. It consisted of about 80,000 cavalry on its arrival at Constantinople. The fleet was led by Suleiman, the Grand Vizier. It counted 1,800 vessels of all descriptions and had on board a force of 80,000, certainly infantry. Probably the number of war vessels was not above 400, but as they each carried 100 soldiers, they were evidently of considerable size. Arab chroniclers, who had every reason to wish to minimize the greatness of the host, and by consequence the magnitude of the disaster, estimate the total fighting force engaged in the siege at 180,000, and in all probability this was merely the land army. The number of marines, seamen, rowers, and camp followers must have been very large. We must never forget that this was the supreme effort of a mighty empire, which for a brief period was the most fiercely vigorous that the world has ever seen. Maslama marched from Tarsus on the Hellespont, while the fleet made its way slowly round Asia Minor into the Aegean. Two more fleets, counting 800 ships, were slowly preparing for sea in the ports of Africa and Egypt, and a third army was mastering at Tarsus, which the Caliph Suleiman proposed to lead himself to the scene of action. The advance was slow. Maslama did not reach the neighborhood of the Hellespont until July, a circumstance which leads to the inference that his march was impeded by immense baggage and supply trains. He turned aside to besiege Pergamus, a reasonable measure of precaution, since the fortress lay dangerously near his left flank, but involving further waste of time. Some of the Pergamenian garrison, fearing that the place would fall, resorted to magical rites. They murdered a pregnant girl, 
cut the body and that of the unborn babe to pieces and boil them in a cauldron. The perpetrators of this frightful piece of butchery then marched past and each dipped his right hand into the hideous mess in the hope that thereby his strength might be redoubled. The affair is even more horrible than the slaughter of the last Heracliad, and after it we can have no sympathy for the garrison, though the writer does not feel himself obliged to be indignant because they repaired their ramparts with fragments of the great altar of Athene. In terrible emergencies, the refinements of civilization must go to the wall. Having taken Pergamus, Maslama advanced to the Hellespont, where he was met by the fleet which conveyed his horsemen across the strait and disembarked its own troops. The army then marched for Constantinople, capturing or occupying the places on the road. On August 15, 717, it was before the landward walls. Maslama spread his huge force across the peninsula, probably also occupying Pera across the Golden Horn. The Saracens entrenched themselves behind huge sangars of piled-up stones. A part of the army was detached into Thrace to observe Adrianople, where there are indications that a Roman force of some size was stationed. Leo was also in communication with King Terbel, to whom he no doubt pointed out that a Mohammedan invasion was as dangerous to him as to the empire. On September the 1st, after a delay of 18 days, probably consumed in landing and forwarding troops and stores, the Saracen fleet arrived. For two days it lay off the Propontian shore near the Golden Gate. Then, on the third, the huge unwieldy mass got under way to occupy the strait above the Golden Horn. This movement could not be allowed to be carried out unopposed. The Imperial Navy lay in the Golden Horn, the mouth of which was protected by a boom consisting of a chain carried on logs and made safe at each end in strong, well-garrisoned towers. The current of Seraglio Point is violent, and the heavy Saracen vessels made slow progress and began to fall into confusion. A gap was made in the boom, probably by towing its end aside, and the Roman ships, the emperor leading the way, came out with oar and tide, and were among the Saracen armada before it could form a line of battle. Taken thus by surprise, the Arabs could do little, the terror of the Greek fire cleared away for the Christian ships. Twenty vessels were destroyed, and a number taken and towed back into the harbor of Constantinople. When the main body of the Arab fleet began to work its way up to the rescue, the far inferior imperial squadron 
had to withdraw, but its confidence had risen enormously. The emperor ordered the boom to be towed completely aside, and for the rest of the day and all night the Roman fleet lay in line of battle across the harbor's mouth, defying the enemy to come on. A battle in the narrow waters was the one thing Leo most earnestly desired, but the maritime fire had badly demoralized the Saracen crews. Suleiman refused to repeat the blunder of Xerxes and fell back down the strait. The all-important waterway to the north was left open, and though the emperor had been disappointed in his hope of entirely defeating the Saracen fleet, he had struck a heavy blow at its morale, and strategically obtained the advantage. The Saracen commanders resolved to fall back upon the slower but safer method of blockade. They evidently knew more than we do of the state of the city's supplies. Fortune was against them. Suleiman died on October the 8th, perhaps partly from exposure. Next, the winter set in with terrible severity. Snow fell early and heavily, and the men began to die fast from the effects of the unaccustomed cold. We do not know that they suffered from hunger. They would hardly have come with only a few weeks' supplies. The cold is quite sufficient to account for their wasting away. Meanwhile, in the city, whatever may have been the emperor's anxieties, the garrison was fairly well fed, well covered, and continued to improve in morale. For many weeks, for a hundred days, says Theophanes and Nicephorus, the snow covered the country, and the Mohammedans could hardly have maintained the siege in the spring of 718, but for their heavy reinforcement. The caliph ate himself to death at Damascus during the winter, but the army at Tarsus went on under the Emir Merdasan. The Egyptian squadron reached the scene of action in the spring, 400 strong, under the Emir Sofian. It succeeded in passing Constantinople, perhaps in the night, and took station at Kalos Agros, Buyuk Dere, or Terapia, above the city, thus blocking the Bosphorus. Soon after, the African fleet of 360 ships under Yezid also moved and moored along the Bithynian shore of the strait. Finally, Merdazan's army occupied the heights of Chalcedon. With Maslama's resupplied and reinforced army on the land side, the great capital was completely beleaguered. The Egyptian and African ships were protected by the fierce current against fire ship attack. The position was undoubtedly critical. The newly arrived squadrons, however, contained many Christians who had little heart in their work.
Some of them succeeded in escaping to Constantinople in boats, and furnished the emperor with accurate information upon the position of the Saracens. Leo wasted no time. Once more the boom was opened, and the fleet put out on its momentous errand. Guided by the deserters, it came up on its opponents, unprepared and at anchor. The engagement that followed was a rout rather than a battle, another egospotami. The Christians deserted their masters wholesale, and ranged themselves on the side of the oncoming Romans. The Muslims, demoralized by the suddenness of the attack, could do little. Into the helpless mass of vessels crushed the Roman drummers, ramming, boarding, using their fire tubes with desperate energy. Many ships were burnt, many boarded and taken, many forced ashore. For all practical purposes, the African and Egyptian fleet was destroyed. All the troops who could be spared from the garrison were embarked on the victorious ships, ferried across the Bosphorus, and landed on the Asiatic shore, and, by a well-planned attack, the army of Merdasan was beaten, cut up, and driven back into Asia Minor. Leo's envoys had at last convinced Caesar King Terbel that his interests were those of the empire, and he was on his way to assist in the defense of Constantinople. The summer was now well advanced, and the army of Maslama was dying fast from disease and famine. Yet it still showed a bold front behind its sangars, and Leo had not troops enough to attack it in its entrenchments. The fleet, though demoralized, was still large in numbers, and Maslama would not abandon the siege. Terbel forced his hand, uniting probably with the Roman force at Adrianople, he encountered Maslama's covering army near that city, and routed it with a loss of 22,000 men. The survivors fell back on the camp before Constantinople, and their arrival completed the demoralization of the perishing Saracens. Without delay, the remains of the army were hurried on board the fleet, taken across the Propontis, and landed near Cyzicus. The fleet cleared the Hellespont safely, but once out in the Aegean, it was shattered and dispersed by a storm. The Roman fleet, which was following from Constantinople, captured or destroyed many of the scattered ships. Others were destroyed by the Greeks of the islands. Of the 1,800 Syrian ships, it is said that only five returned. At any rate, the losses were terrible. Not for 30 years did the Caliphate again send a large fleet to sea, while the unhappy land army, stricken with plague and famine, was further harassed and reduced as it struggled on across Asia Minor, 
so that Maslama eventually reached Tarsus with only 30,000 exhausted men, out of a host which even the Moslem chroniclers rate at 180,000. When we considered the army of Merdasan, the swarms of camp followers, and the crews of the three fleets, it is probable that the entire loss of life was even greater than is indicated by these figures. Judging from such records as we have, the affair was a catastrophe of the magnitude of destruction of Napoleon's army in Russia in 1812. There were certain factors in the favor of the Eastern Romans. Their tactical position was very strong. Their inferiority of force was offset to some extent by superior training. Their fleet was good and armed with some sort of rocket tubes, very efficacious against Arab ships. On the other hand, the land forces were so inferior in numbers that up to the end Leo could not attack the Arabs in their camp. The strategic position had its weak points, the chief one being the line of supply through the Bosphorus. The fleet won most of the credit for the line of defense. It invariably fought with admirable readiness and discipline, and was handled in the most masterly manner. It checked the establishment of the naval blockade at the outset, and broke it when it was temporarily formed in 718. It enabled the army in Constantinople to operate at will on either shore of the Bosphorus, and it followed up the retreating Saracens and completed the ruin of the great armament. The one weak point in the conduct of the defense may appear to be the emperor's refusal to take the offensive at the end of the siege, but we must remember that we know very little of the existing circumstances. With this single doubtful exception, Leo seems to have made no mistake. He had won the greatest success in Roman history, August or September 718. As he saw the relics of the mighty host of his enemies staggering away in rout and misery from the virgin walls of his capital, Leo's heart was gladdened also by the thought that he was no longer sonless. About the end of the siege, his wife Maria had borne him the boy who was to be Constantine the Sixth and to carry on his father's work. The mother was crowned Augusta on Christmas Day, 718, in the Grand Hall of Augustus, and in ancient fashion she came out among the people and flung handfuls of gold to them. Next year, on March 25th, the child was crowned as his father's colleague. Leo's authority was not yet by any means fully established. In 719, the ex-emperor Anastasius II rose against him. The European provinces were in his favor. 
he was supported by several great officials and persuaded King Terbel to assist him. The Bulgarians began to advance on Constantinople from the north, but Leo's personal influence quelled the revolt almost with a blow. The Bulgarian king probably saw that there was no popular movement in favor of the deposed emperor. He handed over Anastasius and his chief supporters to Leo and returned to Bulgaria to die in the following year. Leo executed Anastasius and had no more to fear from the north. In 720, a revolt in Sicily was suppressed by the general Paul, and Leo was able to press forward his reforms. As to the internal conditions of the empire, enough has been said to make it clear that, though not without certain cheering features, it was very bad. Externally, the last great mainland province in the west had gone. In the Balkans, the one solid block of territory held was Thrace. Elsewhere, only the coast districts were regularly administered, the interior regions being held by Slavonic settlers who required constant punitive expeditions to keep them in subjection. Asia Minor, by the close of Leo's reign, was again thoroughly reorganized and solidly occupied up to the line of the Taurus, and Cyprus was also, for the present, back in Roman hands. Leo's purpose was steadily set to gather together the strength of the empire between Hamus and Taurus. He was still in the vigor of life and flushed with splendid victory, but without hesitation he resigned all hope of recovering, for the present, anything that has been lost by his predecessors. He took the field only twice again, leaving the work of repelling Saracen raids to his generals, and concentrated all his attention on the gigantic and, as it must have seemed at first, almost hopeless task of revival. He seems to have deliberately let Italy go. He had apparently come to the conclusion that it was a mere incubus. There can be no doubt that he was right, but it required a man strong among the strongest to declare so much. Under a democratic government, the deliberate abandonment of a useless possession would be an impossibility. Leo made only one digression from this policy during his reign, and his failure probably confirmed him in his original resolution. The other object of his foreign policy was, of course, the defense of his dominions against the Arabs, in which he was successful. Leo's internal reforms are to be divided into civil, military, and religious they may be summed up in general by saying that he reorganized the civil and defensive services, reformed police control, reestablished the rule of law and order, reformed the judicial system, reorganized the finances, encouraged commerce and industry, 
and made a great effort to combat the prevailing barbaric ignorance and superstition by his so-called iconoclastic policy. The details of these reforms are to be gathered from Leo's famous legal manual, the Ecloga, which, though not published until the end of his reign, expresses well the work of his life. It is to be noted that the spirit of the work is not that of the old Roman, non-religious, but decidedly Christian. The barbarism of the times is more or less expressed in the punishments for certain offences. Death is comparatively rare, but mutilation common of infliction. In private law, we note that a concubine has all the legal rights of a wife, and that the father no longer has unlimited powers over his family, but shares them with his wife. The agricultural code shows that serfage had disappeared, and that the peasants were all free, divided between freeholders, tenants, and communal holders. The latter were probably chiefly Slavs, the communal system being distinctly Slavonic. The Maritime Code informs us that commerce was largely carried on by joint stock companies. In finance, Leo enforced the principle of solidarity. Each agricultural community was responsible collectively and individually for the amount of its taxes and, no doubt, so long as the obligation was not crushing, the system worked well. Each member had an interest in seeing that land was not allowed to fall out of cultivation through its holder's laziness. The great feature of the criminal code is its democratic tendency. There is no attempt, as in the Code of Justinian, to fix different punishments for rich and poor. All classes alike must pay the same penalty for their misdeeds a clear advance in the interests of justice. The purity of the judicial administration was greatly enhanced by the establishing of fixed salaries for the officers of the law, who hitherto had depended on presents and fees. Of the military code there is little to say. The soldier's dignity is insisted upon. Men convicted of sexual immorality or connivance at such are to be cashiered. Soldiers must not engage in any trade. The cross and the stake await treasonous deserters. Something has to be said of the gross ignorance and superstition which reigned in the empire, which perhaps found its worst expression in the dreadful Pergamenian incident, but was rife among all classes, included even men like the reigning patriarch Germanus, whose reputation for purity and goodness was great. While the tendency existed everywhere, and was especially strong in the European provinces, there was a decided movement in progress against it, 
especially among the better educated and informed officials and citizens, and very strong in the army, which was in constant contact with a faith of which the best feature was its emphatic denunciation of idolatry in any shape or form. The rational arguments against the adoration of mere pictured or sculptured images are strong, and there is no reason for believing that Leo was incapable of appreciating their force. The fact that he did not make any decided move for eight years shows that he had carefully considered the question. Leo's iconoclastic edict was issued in 726. It forbade image worship as superstitious and irreverent, and ordered the whitewashing of the pictured semblances of saints on the church walls, as well as removal of statues. Rioting immediately broke out. When the palace officials began to remove the great crucifix over the main gate, a mob fell upon them and cudgeled them to death. The troops and police cleared the streets and killed a number of the rioters. Having put down disorder, the emperor set up a cross in place of the crucifix, with an inscription explaining the reason of the change and everywhere pictures and statues were replaced by the symbol of the Christian faith. Leo did his best to make it plain that his objection was to anthropomorphic representations of the Saviour, and the absurd superstitions which had collected about the use of images and pictures. This moderation, however, was far from contenting the clergy, who for the most part were as ignorantly superstitious as their folks. Asia Minor, as a whole, stood by the emperor. The Armenian, Syrian, and Isaurian mountaineers had no love for elaborate symbolism and had felt, too, the force of the taunts of the Mohammedans. In Europe, the state of affairs was different. In Italy, the Pope, Gregory II, led the opposition. The Italian cities would have set up a rival emperor, but the Pope was afraid of the great Lombard king, Luitprand, who was formidable and near at hand, and gave no approval to the extreme step. As it was, the mischief was done. Luitprand overran the exarchate and captured all its towns, with the exception of Ravenna, which after temporarily failing into his hands was retaken by the exarch Eutychius in 729. Nearer home, matters were still more threatening. In 727, the theme of Hellas revolted and proclaimed a certain Cosmas emperor. It was probably supported by other European districts. The Greeks were all for image worship, and it is possible that they were restive under Leo's new fiscal and administrative measures. Greece was evidently already recovering 
from the effects of the Slavonic immigrations, for the revolting province raised a large army and fleet, which under a general named Agalianos, and accompanied by its emperor, boldly set forth to attack Leo in his capital. Leo moved out to meet the rebels, and completely defeated them. Agalianos killed himself. Cosmas was taken and beheaded, but the emperor showed himself very clement towards the prisoners and the rebel province. He was never afraid to strike hard, but no stain of unnecessary cruelty disfigures his character. Leo's domestic troubles encouraged the caliph Hisham to recommence raids on the empire, and in 726 a small Saracen army invaded Cappadocia. In 727, while Leo was busy with the Greek revolt, two great armies entered Asia Minor under Maslama. Caesarea in Cappadocia was taken, while a force pushed forward to Nicaea, but was repulsed. In 729, Leo held a silentium at Constantinople, which condemned Iconodoli, and finding that the ancient patriarch Germanus would not work with him, the emperor deposed him. Next year, Leo removed Illyria, Calabria, and Sicily from the jurisdiction of the Pope, and united them to the Patriarchate of Constantinople. In 732 he sent an expedition against Italy, but it suffered much damage from storms, and effected nothing, and thenceforth he seems to have definitely resolved to let the valueless central Italian districts go. Leo's last eight years were for the most part a period of progress, although the border provinces were harassed by sporadic Saracen raids. The work of reorganization was steadily continued. It was probably in these years that the Ecloga was compiled, though it was not published until 740. In spite of much secret opposition, especially from the clergy, the iconoclastic edict was generally enforced. One of the emperor's measures was the establishment of a register of births, and we get some insight into the ignorance and impracticability of the clergy when we hear that they violently opposed this sensible innovation. Towards the end, Leo was assisted by his son Constantine, already a strong and vigorous young man, in full sympathy with his father, who carefully trained him to follow in his footsteps. In 739 there was a more serious Saracen invasion, in which 90,000 men took part. So serious did it appear that Leo took the field in person, and young Constantine accompanied him to see the practical application of the military wisdom which he had learned from his father. 
we are told that 70,000 Saracens remained in comparative inactivity near Taurus, while only 20,000 horsemen under the famous Abdallah Sid el Batal advanced through the Anatolic theme. I am much inclined to doubt whether a mere plundering force would have brought Leo out in person, and it is quite possible that the greater part of the Saracen invading army composed the force which pushed past Amorium to Acroinon, where Leo and Constantine met and completely defeated it, with the loss of Sidel Batal and all its principal leaders. Leo returned to Constantinople in triumph to resume once more his great task. In 740, the Ecloga was published, and with it Leo put the capstone upon his work. He had done so much that all that remained for his vigorous successor was to follow steadily in his footsteps. The rebuilding of the walls of Constantinople, which had been shattered by an earthquake in 739, and the promulgation of the Ecloga were his last important acts. He died on June 18, 740, having raised the shattered heritage of the Caesars from the deepest depths of degradation and set it once more on the high road to recovered power and prosperity. Leo's best monument is his work, we know little of his personality, and that comes from his bitter enemies. But we need the words of neither friend nor foe. The facts as we know them are convincing. The 8th century was an age of great men. It was the era of Charles Martel, Pippin and Charles the Great in Franklin of Ein and Offa in England, of Luitprand in Italy, of the great Umeyad Abderrahman of Cordova, of the Abbasids Mansur and Harun, as well as of the great iconoclast's grey son. But Leo need fear no comparison with any of them. There was no statesman among them to compare with him, except perhaps Charles the Great. Certainly no such legislator and administrator. As a soldier he was at least the equal of the Karls and of his own warlike son. Morally he stands on a level with the best men of any age. He came to an empire in ruins cowering before the impeding onslaught of its most terrible foes. He opened his reign with the most splendid victory in history, saving his realm and religion from destruction, once more staving off from Europe an attack that could not have been resisted. Out of the wild chaos about him, he built up a fresh and, in many respects, an entirely new structure of empire, 
throwing into the tremendous task a fierce and enduring energy, a stern and pure religious enthusiasm. Where he inherited ruin and misery, he left strength, order, peace, and reviving prosperity. Almost the last act of his life was to lead his armies once more to victory. He went down to the grave in the fullness of years and glory, and left the completion of his life work to a son after his own heart and of his own mind, almost as brave and able as himself. End of section 9. Recording by Mike Botez.